Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast covering documentary film. I'm Tom Powers, the artistic director of Doc NYC, America's largest documentary festival that's coming up November 8th to 15th. Whether you come in person or follow from afar, there is a bounty of new nonfiction film to discover. The festival is loaded with special guests in person, including Seth Meyers, John Mullaney, Olympia Dukakis, Michael Moore, Rashida Jones, Vim Vendors, Jacob Dillon, Jay Cole, Daryl Hammond, and Christo. On this episode, my guests are key figures from the Doc NYC programming team. Together, we watched over a thousand documentary submissions to pick our lineup. My first guest is Raphael Anehausen. She is the executive director of Doc NYC, an Oscar-nominated producer, the executive producer of this podcast, and my wife. Welcome, Rafaela. Thank you, Tom, for having me. So let's jump in, starting with our opening night film. It's called The Biggest Little Farm. You just watched it last night. Tell me what your impressions are. Well, you know, in past years, we've opened with films by documentary icons like Werner Herzog and Errol Morris and Barbara Koppel. And this year we went in another direction with a new filmmaker. And having watched the film, I fully understand why I was completely charmed and moved and taken on this journey uh, that I cannot wait for New York audiences to experience. So The Biggest Little Farm is directed by John Chester. Um, In the film, he and his wife, Molly, decide to uh, give up their careers in Los Angeles. He was an environmental filmmaker. She was a food blogger. And start a farm. Uh, They are starting a family farm, but they want to run it in a biodynamic way, not with monocrops, not with kind of factory uh, farming uh, methods. And we watch them over eight years. Uh, Certainly John Chester puts his uh, skills as a wildlife photographer to great use to this film. There's all kinds of really beautiful observations. Yeah, and I, I want to add to that, it has the drama of a thriller. As you watch them battle, whether it's snails or slugs or coyotes, you get completely invested in these animal relationships like the one between their pig Emma and Rooster called Mr. Greasy. Every step of this film literally has you on the edge of your seat as you watch and really root for this couple to make it on their farm. So uh, let's share a clip. Uh, John and Molly, when they were starting their farm, hired a consultant uh, named Alan York. And uh, here's John and Molly describing their first encounter with this consultant. She was like, hey, John, this guy named Alan York is coming today to give us some advice. Are there any questions? (laughs) (laughs) He's like this world-renowned expert in traditional farming practices. And he shows up wearing all linen and sandals. I can't even get in an inch. But there was this emphatic cadence to his speech that made him sound believable. This is devil weed. By the end of the day, you will have such hate for this plant, you burn this shit, man, as if it's a ritual. 
One thing about this story is that when they had this dream of making the farm and told everyone around them, most people thought they were completely crazy. And that's something they had to reckon with themselves as they tried to get this farm up and running, facing every peril you can imagine. Uh, it was Alan who said to them it would really take seven years for their farm to come together. And that's the journey we watch in this documentary. I got to see this documentary play before audiences at the Toronto International Film Festival in September. Uh, and it was the first runner-up for the Documentary Audience Award behind the film Free Solo. At the Toronto Festival, it was acquired for distribution by Neon, and it will be released in 2019. Neon is the company that made a box office success out of three identical strangers this year. The company's founder, Tom Quinn, was previously with Radius, where he had back-to-back -back Oscar wins with 20 Feet from Stardom and Citizen Four. I think the biggest little farm is going to be a big sensation next year. New York audiences can have their first look at Doc NYC opening night, November 8th. Now let's turn to the Doc NYC centerpiece that brings Seth Meyers to the festival. He's the co-creator with Bill Hader and Fred Armisen of the IFC TV's terrific parody series, Documentary Now. They've done two seasons so far, and in each episode, they lovingly recreate a classic documentary, like Grey Gardens or Thin Blue Line or Stop Making Sense, only giving it a hilarious twist. The third season is coming up in 2019, and we're thrilled to present the world premiere of a new episode. Other key figures behind the scenes of this show are Reese Thomas and Alex Buono. They have day jobs working for Saturday Night Live, where they direct the bits that aren't live, like the commercial parodies, and they are brilliant mimics of style. To set up the Documentary Now episode we're showing, I want to first highlight the classic film that it's based on. That's D.A. Pennebaker's cast album Company from 1970. D.A. Pennebaker spent all day and night in a New York studio to capture the recording of the Broadway cast album for Stephen Sondheim's musical Company. One highlight of that film is watching the singer Elaine Stritch as she tries take after take of a song until she finally nails it. Let's hear it for the ladies who That's one hell of a good take. I want you to come in and listen to it. In the documentary now parody version, the title is Cast Album Co-op. They've changed the director from D.A. Pennebaker to the fictional R.C. Baumgartner and created a fictional Broadway show called Co-op about a New York City apartment building. At the co -op. 
Co-op. It's Bozart's under scaffolding. Co-op. The staff can't do anything. Co-op. But they might still strike this spring. That's the gossip at the mail drop. Here in our co-op. Whose package is this? Something from overnight insulin emergency providers? Going once, twice, nope. Okay, garbage time. Bye-bye, box. After the screening of the film, we will be treated to an extended conversation with Seth Meyers, directors Reese Thomas and Alex Buono, and some of the incredible cast in this episode, comic actor John Mulaney and Renee Elise Goldsberry from the Hamilton musical. And even better, I know that D.A. Pennebaker, now 93 years old, is going to be in the audience that night to see how this measures up to his original. Uh, That just gives me goosebumps, uh, knowing that D.A. Pennebaker (laughs) will be there. No documentary fan should miss this on Friday, November 9th. Our closing night film is the world premiere of Breslin and Hamill, Deadline Artists, about the great New York City journalists Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill. I can't think of a film more fitting for a New York festival. Breslin and Hamill were among the great newspaper columnists of the late 20th century. The journalist Jonathan Alter has teamed with filmmakers John Block and Steve McCarthy for this well-told history that takes us through classic New York news stories such as Bernard Goetz, Son of Sam, and the Central Park Five, as well as national stories like the Civil Rights Movement, Vietnam, and 9-11. This film will be coming to HBO in 2019. So, Rafaela, later in this episode, I'm going to be talking to the festival's programming team about various sections in the festival. Let me ask you about the section called Shortlist. Each year, the festival team chooses 15 of our favorite documentaries of the year, ones that we think will be strong contenders for Oscar season. This is a great chance to catch up on the most talked about films of the year with the directors in person. We have Rashida Jones and Alan Hicks presenting their film Quincy about Rashida's father, Quincy Jones. Alan previously made the great jazz documentary Keep On Keepin' On that was on a previous Doc NYC shortlist. Quincy's life is like a history of post-war American music from jazz to pop to hip hop He's done it all and is a fantastic raconteur. Daddy was a carpenter for the Jones boys, the black gangsters that ran the ghetto back in Chicago. We fought, we stole, we ran with gangs and from gangs. By that time, I was carrying a knife and doing whatever I thought I had to do to survive. Why not? My world seemed to be senseless. If my mother could go crazy, who couldn't? Daddy was in over his head and took us to stay with his mother. Grandma was a former slave. She cooked whatever she could get her hands on. Mustard greens, okra, possums, and rats. We ate them because that's all there was to eat. That's Quincy Jones in the film Quincy. Another special screening in the shortlist will be Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 11.9 taking place on, yep, you guessed it, November 9th, the date it commemorates exactly two years after Donald Trump was elected president. 
This will also come a few days after America's midterm elections. Whichever way that goes, you know that Michael Moore will have something memorable to say about it when he presents this film at Doc NYC. Several films in the shortlist bring back directors who have previously been on this podcast. Tim Wardle with Three Identical Strangers, Betsy West and Julie Cohen with RBG, Sandy Tan with Shirkers, and one of my personal favorite filmmakers, Vim Vendors, with Pope Francis, A Man of His Word. Vendors is also receiving a lifetime achievement at Doc NYC's Visionaries Lunch. All the 15 shortlist filmmakers will be speaking on panels at our Doc NYC Pro Conference on November 9th. That conference runs for eight days concurrent with the festival, November 8th to 15th. If you're a documentary professional or aspiring to be one, you should think about getting a Doc NYC Pro Pass. And also important to note, it's not just panels. There's other stuff, too. We have daily breakfasts. We have daily happy hours. It's a great chance to meet the community and network with fellow filmmakers and industry. All right, Rafaela, I'm going to let you get back to work as I bring in our next guest. Thanks very much for being here. Always a pleasure, Tom. Our second guest on this tour through Doc NYC is the director of programming, Basil Siokos. He does the real heavy lifting at this festival, overseeing the whole programming team. This is his sixth year with Doc NYC. Welcome, Basil. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Um, so we've got two competition sections uh, at the festival, Viewfinders and Metropolis. Let's start with Viewfinders. Describe what goes on in that section. Sure. Uh, so Viewfinders is our uh, annual feature competition spotlighting a selection of titles demonstrating a distinct directorial vision. Uh, this allows us to draw attention to a diverse range of films. Some of them are inherently personal. Others are covering larger issues, um, but usually in an artful or unique manner. One film making its world premiere in the Viewfinders competition is Cooked Survival by Zip Code. Uh, this is a film by Judith Helfand, who is known for her Sundance award-winning documentary, Blue Vinyl. She's also an influential part of the nonfiction community as the co-founder of Chicken and Egg Pictures. So Chicken and Egg is an organization that's supported a lot of women filmmakers over the years. Absolutely. Uh, and they've been a longtime supporter for Doc NYC as well. And uh, we're, we're so thrilled to be able to bring uh, Judith's film to the festival. Uh, in this film in particular, uh, Judith uses a deadly heat wave in Chicago, as well as natural disasters like Hurricanes Katrina and Sandy, to explore the politics of disaster and the response and the intersection with issues of poverty. So it's an inevitable way to describe it, but what it's hard to convey about this film is the kind of playfulness that Judith Helfand brings whenever she's talking about uh, tough topics. She has an interviewing style that uh, really disarms, I think, the people that she's talking to. We have a clip. This is Judith. She's talking to a brigadier general of the Kentucky Division of Emergency Management uh, they're conducting an exercise uh, for what to do during a natural disaster. And one of the points that Judith is making in this film is that natural disasters always affect low-income communities much worse than uh, any others for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so one of the questions she's asking is, you know, what if we dealt with the difficulties that low-income communities face before a disaster hits them? And here's a conversation she has with this Brigadier General. 
but with a minor tweak to the term disaster. Maybe this well-funded federal agency could invest in the long-term resilience of the vulnerable communities they're actually preparing to rescue. The trick ends up being not what you're chasing here by turning that into a disaster, because it's not... Well, it is a disaster. No, it's, it's a crisis, and it's, uh, it's, it, it's one of the negative parts of the real world. And, and where I come from, you know, nobody gets a free pass. You have to take, you reach down, grab yourself by the bootstraps and let's go. I wish I had a better answer for you. I, only, I, I will say you've piqued my interest. I'm thinking my brain is trying to connect some dots. This film makes all of us connect dots in a wonderful use of documentary. It's called Cooked Survival by Zip Code, and it's having its world premiere at DocNYC. Um, I'm going to talk about another film from the Viewfinders competition. It's called Walking on Water, about the artist Christo. He's the visionary artist who's probably best known in New York for his 2005 project, The Gates, in Central Park. For several decades, Christo and his partner Jean-Claude created site-specific installation projects that would last for only a few weeks. They're famous for their use of fabric. It wrapped the Reichstag in Berlin and hung a curtain through a California valley. And for years, all their projects were documented on film by Albert and David Maisels for several films. Now the Maisels are gone and Jean-Claude has passed away, but Christo is still going strong. He's a longtime New York character, so it's wonderful to have him at the festival just for that reason. The new film, Walking on Water, documents a project from 2016 called The Floating Piers on Lake Isio in Italy. Christo stretched yellow fabric across plastic pontoons that allowed visitors to walk on water. The challenge of the project is that it was such a huge tourist attraction for the weeks it was open that hundreds of thousands of people came to experience it but the installation was only built to hold 10,000 people. All of this is playing out in front of the camera. We have a clip here where you can hear Christo in his Bulgarian accent complaining about the local officials who aren't doing enough to control the crowds. The second voice is his nephew, Vladimir Yavachev, who's kind of taken Jean-Claude's place in helping Christo realize his dreams. It's the madness, madness of this official do not understand. Nothing to do with fear, nothing with the stupidity of trends. They need to do drastically something. We can be sued, can we sue? If the ratio between 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock continues, by midnight we have 200,000 people. I know. But no, we calculated we come from. I know. We cannot have more than 10,000 people in the whole system. You have 10,000, you shut down. When the orange code comes, we close the entire system. First, first, second, second, third, third. But third is not going like this. It goes like this. Yes, of course, of course. Going because out. because they, there were so many people here. And when you have all these people from here coming here, and then these people come here, this becomes impossible. Of course. So if they're stupid enough to follow the system, it's not our responsibility anymore. And if somebody sees Mario Buero and he hasn't changed this by three o'clock when the warning is coming, we shut down the project. The director of Walking on Water is a fellow Bulgarian of Christos, Andrei Paunov, who's made several delightful films before. 
And he directs this one like an homage to the Maisel's films. It's in that same kind of direct cinema, observational style. Christo is going to be at Doc NYC um, for the screening, along with Andre Paunov. Uh, it is definitely one not to miss. Now let's talk about our other competition section called Metropolis. Basil, tell us what goes on in that section. Sure. Uh, Metropolis allows us to pay tribute to our home base, New York City, with a series of films focused on the city or on uh, notable New Yorkers. Um, among the films we've got this year is a section of seven titles. Uh, we've got films like The World Before Your Feet, which uh, features a man who's walking every single block of the city, um, giving a love letter to New York City. So that film is directed by Jeremy Workman, uh, who also has been the person who cuts the Doc NYC trailer for uh, many years. He's previously had a feature-length documentary at the festival before. I think this is the, his second time. That's right. And I'd like to highlight a couple of other titles in Metropolis this year. Uh, the first one I'd like to talk about is Razura Alexander's Creating a Character, which has its world premiere at the festival. This film focuses on Moni Yakim, one of the founders of Juilliard's drama department, who has taught the likes of Jessica Chastain, Viola Davis, Laura Linney, and Kevin Klein. This film finally puts him in the spotlight, telling his fascinating story um, and the impact that he's had on several students over the past decades. Uh, Moni Yakim is someone I had never heard of, although he clearly is a legend uh, amongst the acting community. Here is a clip with the actors Michael Yuri and then Jessica Chastain talking about Moni Yakim at Juilliard. I remember hearing about Moni prior to getting to the school because he was legendary. He had been there from the very beginning of Juilliard. But they do a very interesting thing at Juilliard where they keep him from you for a year. I think to build fear. There's this feeling of fear. <laughs> Simultaneous! Because so many students would walk out exhausted, dripping with sweat. You could tell that they had been really tested. And again, that was Creating a Character, The Moni Akeem Legacy, screening at Doc NYC. Let's talk about another film in the Metropolis section. We're going to move from Lincoln Center and Juilliard up to the Bronx uh, for a film called Decade of Fire. Um, what is this film, Basil? Uh, Decade of Fire is another film debuting in Metropolis uh, by Vivian Vasquez and Gretchen Hildebrand. It's a personal film told from uh, Vasquez's perspective. Uh, it's an archive-rich look back at the Bronx in the 1970s when the borough was literally on fire and its residents were unfairly blamed. With New York City at the time in bankruptcy, um, a lot of, lot of bad stuff was happening and uh, the residents were the ones that were uh, taking the brunt of it. And this film reflects how the Bronx was dealt with in the media at that time. Vivian was growing up in the Bronx. She eventually left to uh, go to college. Uh, throughout the film, we see her in dialogue with her uh, grown son, Antonio. Um, here's a section where uh, he's asking her about what happened after she went to college. So you reach this moment where you feel the need, I need to get out. What brought you back? visually saying, wait a second, not all communities are like what I, where I came from. So that sense of injustice, the sense of anger. Even before I graduated, I started coming back. After my freshman year, I spent the summer recruiting kids from my neighborhood to go to college. 
I worked with the assemblyman of the district. He would open the office on Saturday mornings so we can invite high schools to come to his office to recruit kids of color. In my second year, I came back to work on tenant organizing and voter registration. Around this time, Fort Apache showed up. A Hollywood movie that depicted us as criminals and savages started filming here. Fort Apache, the Bronx. The fuse has been lit. We were sick of seeing our community being used as a backdrop. So that's from Decade of Fire, playing in the Metropolis section. Uh, so those are our two competition sections, Viewfinders, Metropolis. Um, we have several other thematic sections. Uh, Basil, give us the big overview of how many films are playing at Doc NYC. Sure. Uh, this year's festival is our biggest one yet. We have uh, 135 features uh, taking part in the festival, as well as over 100 shorts. Um, our side industry programming section, Doc NYC Pro, panels and masterclasses, includes 69 uh, different panels. So it's a really big year this year. So uh, we don't have the time to tell you about all of these films, uh, but we do have some of our other programmers coming up later in the program to tell you about a few different sections to give you uh, a sampling of this. Um, Basil, uh, can you talk about the programming team at DocNYC? Yeah, this is a massive undertaking, and, and you and I aren't able to do it uh, on our own. Um, we have a, a really large screening committee that helps us go through the work and sort of identifying the strongest work, um, as well as our core programming team, which consists of Ruth Samalo, Karen McMullen, and Jesse Fairbanks. You'll be hearing from Ruth and Karen later in the podcast. Uh, Jesse, unfortunately, isn't able to join us because she's based outside of the city, um, but we'll be around during the festival. Well, Basil, thank you very much for your hard work. Please get some rest before the festival begins. Thanks, Tom. I'll do my best. Our third guest on this tour of Doc NYC is programmer Ruth Samalo. She has been at every edition of Doc NYC since its beginning in 2010. Uh, Ruth is originally from Spain, now lives in New York City. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you, Tom. Very happy to be here. Uh, so start by telling us a little bit about your background in documentary film. Sure. So as a documentary film lover, when I was studying journalism, I decided that that's what I wanted to do. So I started studying with um, all the incredible filmmakers that I could go see master classes. I studied for a year with Michael Raviger, with Patricia Goodman, with all the, all the great ones that were coming through Spain at the time. And then I moved to London and I started making films and also I started programming. And actually in London, I was programming for anthropologists and filmmakers to have a discussion, something that is now you know, really in vogue thanks to the Ethnography Sensory Lab. Uh -huh. um, but, uh, but then since I moved to New York, I've been programming Spanish nonfiction and female filmmakers. So really, my love of nonfiction is equal. In, and I think like you, Tom, right? Like as a filmmaker and as a programmer and showing the films and generating spaces for conversation. That's true. That was my trajectory uh, as well. So I want to uh, talk about two sections in the festival um, with you. The first one is the behind the scenes section. Uh, this is uh, our films about different aspects of filmmaking, and that section includes The Eyes of Orson Welles by Mark Cousins and The Ghost of Peter Sellers uh, by Peter Medak. 
And the film cracked up about Saturday Night Live performer Daryl Hammond. Uh, but there's one film in this section that doesn't have a famous personage front and center. That's called Beyond the Bolex. It's directed by Alyssa Bosley, and it's having its world premiere at Doc NYC. Alyssa discovered that her great-grandfather was the inventor of the Bolex camera. That was a key piece of equipment for many generations of filmmakers. Here's a clip from Beyond the Bolex where Alyssa talks about the legacy of that camera. From iconic avant-garde filmmakers like Maya Darren in the 1940s, to artists like Andy Warhol. Uh, it's just, you don't have to do anything. Or filmmakers like Steven Spielberg in the 1960s or Peter Jackson and Spike Lee in the 80s. For maybe two generations of people who grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, the Bolex was the gateway, and their dreams were attached to that camera. That last voice you hear is Vim Vendors. Ruth, tell me what you responded to in this film. Well, Tom, I was really excited to learn about this film because um, I have used the bollocks and most of my filmmaker friends that work in experimental film absolutely love the bollocks. And it's a camera that, as Wim Bender says, and I think um, I think it's Jonas Mekas says in the film, is like the Swiss army knife of filmmaking because you can bring it everywhere and it has been used as much in the 20s as it is now. And um, there is a resurgence of interest by audiences to see films in the for in the small format um, of celluloid in super 8 in 60 millimeters more and more cinemas especially in new york are accommodating their projecting spaces to show films in original cinema format and uh, i just really love this um, super well designed apparatus this piece of equipment who was not only affordable but also will give the opportunity to film filmmakers to use all the tricks that you will love in the very classic, you know, history of cinema, like the double exposure, the stop motion animation, all the tricks that you could see in like Melia cinema, you could now do with these little bollocks. Uh, it is an amazing piece of equipment and this film is a wonderful tribute to it. And I did learn so much about it uh, from watching. So that is Beyond the Bollocks. Also, you can uh, you can see lots of different filmmakers talk about their own personal relationship with the camera. So like you were saying, maybe there is not a, a central um, character in the film that is famous, but there is a Michel Gondry, Peter Jackson, there is a Spielberg, there's a great mini um, teaching lesson from the great Barbara Hammer in how to use the bollocks and to use your body when you're a female filmmaker. So it's, it's full of like great, beautiful little tributes to, uh, to, the, to the origins of cinema. I'm really happy that uh, we have this world premiere. Let's talk about the section called Modern Family, which is really the baby of yours in this uh, festival. It contains six films that you've really nurtured. Tell us what to find in the Modern Family section. Well, Tom, this year is even 10 films. This, oh, this year, Modern Family. I miscounted. It's all good uh, because there were so many good films that we couldn't uh, not have them. So I think this is a great um, section for people that are looking to see intimate stories about human relations, um, well-observed processes of how families, how groups of people deal with drama, the drama of everyday life, the drama of historical things that we inherited from our parents, the mysteries in our families, like somebody die and then suddenly what's happening 
with that legacy and who was really my father or my grandfather, all kinds of really great movies. Um, but more than anything, I think they give us a sense of how a family could be really any kind of grouping that supports you and nurture you. It could be your friends, it could be your community, it could be your colleagues at work. And I think that's a very beautiful way to look at family. So the, uh, this section has at least two films by returning filmmakers to Doc NYC, uh, to, uh, two women who had previous films at the festival. One of those filmmakers is Danae Alon, and her new film is called A Sister's Song, which is like a psychological thriller. Uh, it's about an Israeli woman whose sister became a nun and has been living cloistered in a convent in Greece for many years. And now the Israeli woman really wants to reestablish contact with her sister. Um, and it's almost like someone trying to rescue someone from a cult. It's exactly that, Tom, because it's uh, it's really complicated to understand the reasons why some people will choose to lose their freedom completely. But in this film, we're not judging the decisions. We're just trying to understand them. And perhaps there is no final answers, but we are really previewed to an incredibly secret process between these two sisters and what led, what kind of like love led this young sister to abandon her house at such an early age and move to this strange, very austere place in Greece to follow this leader, Gerondas. And then her sister really wanted to, like, first she goes to visit her and then she realized that she might be not as happy as she thinks she is. And how, how as family members, as people that we care for each other, how do we deal with someone's convictions when we realize they are not potentially as good for them as they are? Uh, it's called The Sister's Song. It's a quiet film, but a very tense film. Uh, and we're happy to have that one. Uh, then uh, another returning alum to Doc NYC is the filmmaker Maxine Trump. Her film has the great title, To Kid or Not to Kid. Tell us about this film. So this one touched me very personally because uh, Maxine was asking, she's also in her 40s, asking herself the question, well, do I really want to be a mom or not? And then when, when confronting the possibility of not becoming a mom, then she encountered all kinds of backlash. And when she really started investigating what does it mean to not want to engage in procreation, being a, a woman in today's society, then she realized how much our society is really pushing forward this naturalist idea and how much criticism we faced if we decide um, that we don't want to procreate. And um, me one being one of those women that decided that uh, a long time ago, um, I have been like really feeling accused of like being selfish or, you know, or, or like confused or, or all kinds of things that have a very negative connotation. And every time I travel to Spain, I have to give all kinds of explanations to friends and family of what in hell I don't have a kid. Right. <laughs> and uh, and this film really explores it in a very, very non-confrontational, but um, interesting and deep way, because I didn't even realize how much the our society it is really um, economically and socially pushing this idea that every woman need to be a mom. So that film is called To Kid or Not to Kid. Uh, it's having its world premiere, very provocative uh, subject matter. So there's one other film I want to ask you about in the Modern Family section, and that's called Little Miss Westie, another world premiere. Tell us about Little Miss Westie. Well, this is an incredibly relevant film. After the New York Times article 
just exposed that the government wants to define gender as determined by their anatomy at birth. And uh, with enormous implications, it, it will eliminate all the protections afforded to the transgender people by the Obama administration. And, and it's th this film really gives you the access to these very earliest stages of human development with these two siblings uh, don't feel identified by their birth um, gender, you know, in relationship to their anatomy. And their, their parents have the incredible vision to nurture them and to give them the space to explore, to identify, to really grow and observe what they need to become the beautiful humans that they are. It's a brother and sister, both of whom are transgendered. Exactly, Tom. They were both so um, born with uh, anatomies that didn't match the way they identify as gender. And um, little Ren um, wants to go through this rite of passage that is a beauty pageant. And her older brother, um, Luca, helps her figure out how to do, you know, the best possible performance. But this is, a, again, a non-traditional um, relationship between siblings and a non-traditional protagonist for a film. So it's really sweet and heartwarming and, and brave, like the, the way that this family allowed the filmmaker to really um, spend all that time in the family and seeing how... And, and you the most important thing is that you really see how these children flourish and how their emotional development just help them become way more happy in their new fine genders. And I think that this experience is something that is you know new to lots of people. And uh, this film uh, shows young people who are incredibly confident about themselves and uh, the bodies that they live in. Absolutely. And that's a trajectory. And sometimes it's messy. Um, and this film shows that as well. So it's a, it's a beautiful portrait of, of this group of humans that are in this family. Uh, so we have a clip from the film. The first clip is near the beginning of the film uh, when the young girl, Ren, uh, is practicing a speech that she was going to give at the Little Miss Westie competition. Uh, if I could... Go back in time, I would go back to when I was three or four to tell my mom and dad that that I am a girl and that I didn't want to go on living as a boy. And we have another clip from the film. This is when Ren's older brother, Luca, uh, is coaching her on uh, how to present at the Little Miss Westie Festival. You don't have to put your hands like that. <laughs> No, not like this. I don't know why you're doing that. You know what's weird? The fact that I keep talking, but she keeps not listening to me. On your hip, not your waist. Does she not understand that she has to look pretty, not crazy? No, just look at, oh my God. Hip, hip, where is your hip? That's your butt, where is your hip? Ren, pay attention. So that's the film Little Miss Westie making its world premiere at Doc NYC. So, Ruth, the last section of films I want to ask you about is called In the System. Uh, these are films that reflect different institutions and the way human beings uh, interact with them. Let me ask you about the film called The Heat, which is about women chefs. I'm proud to be a woman chef. There's a huge number of women chefs cooking, and we just don't talk about them. And yet, somehow, people still think that there actually aren't a lot of female chefs or women chefs because they're not really the ones written about, and they're not the important ones. 
And so that's the uphill battle. If you don't keep talking about us, then we're not going to have a place. We're going to keep getting pushed aside. So in, in this film, director Maya Gallus really, um, really brings about this, this larger conversation that has to do with the Me Too movement and how the really aggressive and, and stressful environment of the kitchen has been um, really um, a place of discrimination and harassment for, for female cooks. And in this film, we, we see seven female chefs, most of them from uh, North America, one in London, one in Paris. And they are really like being creative at, at trying to first have a little bit of space um, in the media world because the media is very much focused on, you know, the, the male, super successful, super aggressive chefs, as we can see all the time in TV, and not giving any space to female chefs. Um, so they are finding creative ways to not only have a little bit of a space at the table, but also to try and do things in a different way because this... And, and I think this section is really important because it's also showing how institutions are forcing people to act in certain ways and how they are um, controlling our society and molding our society. And, and perhaps there's revolutionary to think about the kitchen as a space where one can be tough, and but it can be also sweet. And these uh, incredible chefs are negotiating that space of leadership where you really have to be tough, and even if you face a lot more criticism, because as you know, females, tough bosses face a lot more uh, criticism when they are females. But also to try and do things in a in a different way and not perpetuate this cycle of like, you know, violence that kitchens usually have because uh, it's, it's like a bunker. You're like compressed 17 hours a day and um, there's all this hierarchy. So I learned a lot with this film. Um, also, there is um, um, a local... Um, restaurant being portrayed that I really like in the Lower East Side. So, um, what is that restaurant? So it's called Dirt Candy, and it's run by Amanda Cohen, the queen of New York's vegetarian cuisine, and it's in the Lower East Side. So I've seen this this uh, restaurant grow in my neighborhood. Uh, and you're definitely going to be hungry after you watch this film. So we should probably book a field trip to Dirt Candy uh, after the screening. Absolutely, this is a this is a very interesting film that is going to make you very hungry. Um, and before I let you go, there's uh, a Spanish film uh, in this in the section in the system. So let me get you to talk about that. So this is a very interesting um, little film that really runs and plays like a Disney movie, but uh, has the framing and the pace of a Hitchcock film. And it's called See You Tomorrow, God Willing. It's directed by Nara Vera, is our only Spanish director. And it's a film about 17 octogenarian Franciscan nuns which might not sound very appealing, but uh, this incredible group of humans are facing, you know, everything that we're facing politically and like all the transformations at the Vatican. And uh, and they're really like considering um, all these um, very deep metaphysical things at the same time as uh, their everyday quotidian existence. And it's a sweet little portrait, and I would re really recommend people to go see it. Well, Ruth, thank you very much for your tips and recommendations. Uh, people who come to DocNYC can see Ruth doing introductions and Q&As uh, all over the festival. She uh, does a lot of hard work, and we're very grateful to have you. Thank you so much, though. My pleasure. See you all in the movies. You can get it if you really want You can get it if you really want 
succeed at last. Okay, our fourth and final guest talking about Doc NYC is associate programmer Karen McMullen. This is her second year programming documentaries at the festival. Welcome, Karen. Hi, Tom. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in documentary film? Sure. Um, after a really wise decision not to go to law school, I um, decided to try my hand in the film world. After volunteering many places, I ended up in the editing room of a small documentary called uh, Question of Color. And this woman was examining issues of colorism in the black community. And I really loved documentary film. And I, I bounced around in advertising and feature films, but I always kind of came back to documentary film. And um, at one point, a good friend of mine uh, asked me if I wanted to come to Boston to work at Blackside. So Blackside is a kind of legendary production company. They produced Eyes on the Prize. We did uh, its episode of Pure Nonfiction uh, devoted to that series. Um, and, and they produced many other films besides. Working at Blackside was a seminal experience in my career. It was a really um, passionate place. It was a really unique, small place in the, the south end of Boston. Uh, Henry Hampton, the founder, was there, and he loomed large. He was a large-in-life figure. And, you know, I believe Eyes on the Prize is one of the most important documentary series that's been done. So I was really honored to work there early in my career. And so you spent many years uh, on the editing side of documentaries, and uh, more recently you've put more of a focus on festival programming. Can you talk about what you've been doing there? Sure. I've worked with a number of film festivals um, in all aspects. I started by selling T-shirts and uh, doing that type of stuff in the lobby for the African Film Festival and at Lincoln Center. That was wonderful, and um, I got into screening. I found that as a former editor, I had a really large capacity for watching large amounts of footage and sitting down by myself <laughs> in <laughs> the dark. key part of the job. <laughs> you can do it in the light, too. <laughs> so I started working at the Nantucket Film Festival, and I soon came on as a screener at Doc NYC as well. I'm the lead curator for New Voices in Black Cinema, I screen for Sundance, and I am the head of programming for a new film festival called Tide, and that's for filmmakers of color across ethnicities. Well, great. Well, we are really happy to have you on our team. Now, this year at Doc NYC, we have two Lifetime Achievement recipients. One of them is Vim Vendors, who we talked about earlier. And the other one is Orlando Bagwell, who was a key figure at Blackside, a great filmmaker with a long career uh, himself. But... He also worked at the Ford Foundation, uh, helping other filmmakers. He uh, was at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, teaching filmmakers. Um, he was been a presence in your life. Can you talk about the significance of Orlando Bagwell as a filmmaker and as a mentor? Sure. When I went to Blackside, it was to work on Orlando's film, Malcolm X, Make It Plain. I spent a year in Boston working on that film. We cut it on 16 millimeter, one of the last films I worked on on 16 millimeter. And the editor was the illustrious Jean Chin. Um, it was a really wonderful team, very passionate, uh, dedicated team. We worked really long hours, but we were all uh, committed to, to getting this film just right. 
And it was Orlando, Orlando's vision. He's very steadfast. He's very clear about what he wanted to have. Yet he was very generous in soliciting input from his team, even me, who at the time was just an assistant editor. Everybody who was on the team got to have their voices heard in terms of what they thought would make the film better. And I think the film was richer because of it. He had the ultimate say. In my experience, Orlando comes off as a very quiet guy, but obviously a man of immense presence in, in a lot of people's lives. I would concur with that description. He is quiet. He's funny. Um, he's very smart, uh, very warm when you uh, get to know him. He's a very warm character. And he he was really instrumental in the filmmaking careers of a lot of a lot, a lot of black people, um, a lot of other people as well. But he he was very instrumental, I think, mostly because of the themes. He covered everything in his films from homeless Vietnam vets to Martin Luther King and Citizen King to Malcolm X and Malcolm X Make It Plain to, um, you know, he did one of his first documentaries was Run, Jesse Run, I believe it was called, but it was about Jesse Jackson's campaign for president. And uh, he just has a breadth of experience. He used to be an educator, and I feel like that strain runs through his films because they're informative and entertaining, but also educational. We're going to be showing uh, one of his films is a retrospective uh, called Him for Alvin Ailey. Uh, we're going to have some New York um, school kids coming out to, to see that film, and he will be receiving his lifetime recipient uh, honor at our Visionaries Tribute Lunch, um, and we're looking forward to that. Yeah, I am too. I love Alvin Ailey. I used to take a lot of classes there. Um, and Orlando used to be a dancer. Um, yeah, fun fact about Orlando. <laughs> Once you see it and you see his posture and his the way he holds himself, you can... Like, you get course, it. Yeah. You get it. Okay, I want to talk to you about a couple films in our Sonic Cinema section. That's our section devoted to um, music documentaries. There's a film called uh, 16 Bars by the director Samuel Bathrick. Karen, what can you tell me about this film? 16 Bars is a really uh, intense film, entertaining at the same time, and enlightening. It follows four inmates in a jail in Richmond. They're not in prison yet. They're mostly awaiting trial. And from very different walks of life, but have all wound up in the prison system. And Speech, who is better known in the music community as one of the members of the group Arrested Development, is conducting a music workshop for prisoners. It's voluntary, but prisoners on good behavior can come up and and record their music. So many of them rap, some play instruments, and it's, it's uh, looking to rehabilitate people through music. Uh, and do we hear a lot of music in the film? You do hear a lot of music in the film, and it's quite good. None of it is not good. And one of the edicts on the wall of the recording studio is no cursing. So the the raps are clean. Um, and I think that's a big service to the the artists because they are forced to talk about other things than some rap, some obvious rap stuff. <laughs> um, and what they choose to talk about is very powerful. I wrote this to inspire. I pray that it do. 
I wrote this to inspire If you tired of the lying And the bias and the violence Gotta stand on top of that giant Like King David and Goliath For the fellas that can't get higher Ever since Obama left the White House Seemed like the White House done got whiter In the air will be whole our lighters For the convicts locked on Rikers And the lifers And that moment is hooked on cracks of the nerd kid diapers To the young black man indicted Could have been a draft pick for the Vikings Got pulled over, he ain't got a license Caught with some crack in the scale in the rifle Time never wasted, mind elevated Raising the eighties, could have went crazy But gosh, your favor, your soul, they can save it Baby, with a baby, you can still make it Child support with EBT Raise their kids on BET Stack their paychecks week to week Now ain't no gunshots when they sleeping I know God watch over me Over me, over me So that film is called 16 Bars, a plane in our Sonic Cinema section. And it's a good reflection that that section is a big catch-all of lots of different musical styles, documentary interpretations of music. There's films about jazz and pop and and hip-hop. So another film I want to ask you about in that section is called Rude Boy, The Story of Trojan Records. It's making... It's U.S. premiere, directed by Nicholas Jack Davies. Tell us about Rude Boy. Rude Boy is a really good-looking film. It's a good sound film, um, but it's very good-looking. It's done with archival footage, which is amazing to see, of classic reggae and ska and... uh, Rocksteady. Rocksteady. Very good, Tom. (laughs) Um, All the music that came from Jamaica. And so the Jamaican immigrants in the 60s immigrated to Britain, and they brought their music with them. And at first, like most new music forms, it's shunned, and the mainstream radio stations won't play it, but it infiltrates the culture eventually. And British youth and Jamaican youth really bond around this, and so there's an integration around the music that some say is responsible for the multiculturalism going on in Britain today, this mingling of races on the dance floor. So out of this scene came this record company called Trojan Records that w- was releasing all this Jamaican-influenced music and, fil- and music from uh, Jamaica. Uh, it's a whole strain of music that you know has never been front and center in my life, but I feel has always been in the background uh, uh, somewhere. Yeah, and you don't realize it until you watch the movie, and you're like, oh, I know that song. Oh, I love that song. Oh, that's who made that song? That's right. That's right. Over and, and over again. Yeah, it's great. And um, Well, he, here's a clip we have uh, talking about the rise of Desmond Decker and a song that may sound familiar. I knew that our music wasn't only entertaining. Before the show started, we were all inside, and Desmond gonna go on stage now. And he had on this nice um, knitted tie. I said, Desmond, take off the tie. No, man, you have to go on stage presentable. I said, yes, but right now you're sweet. And just as he hit the stage, a group of young kids, white kids, they mop the stage and hang on on his tie. Ah, this... 
I've never seen a black man turn red <laughs> before. <laughs> what really impressed me about this film is how many voices there are in it, how many people from that era, people I didn't know of before, but are clearly influential figures. There are. There's a lot of uh, the original artists are still there. So there's archival footage of them. And then here they are now, these aging uh, Jamaican folks who've had this whole career in the music industry sitting on their couches telling about the times. And uh, A lot of fashion in this film. A lot of fashion. It's a good-looking film. Um, they do a lot of really beautiful stylized reenactments, which is edited seamlessly with the with the real footage. It's really nice to watch. Just at the at the highest level, I mean, it's the kind of thing that if you described on paper, oh, we're gonna recreate a scene of Desmond Decker in a club, uh, you'd be really wary right. about that. But it's so well done. Yeah, they really pulled it off, and it's a complete toe tapper. I mean, this this film really makes you want to go back through your old. Uh, LPs and, and dust off, not just the Bob Marley, but the Toots and Maisels and, and you know, the dandies. Totally. Well, the, the, there's one anecdote um, in the film uh, t- uh, told by Pauline Black, who's uh, describing the song Young, Gifted, and Black, which is a song I know through the famous Nina Simone version. But in England, there was a version released by a group called uh, Bob and Marsha, and that's what Pauline Black describes here. Young, Gifted and Black gave a, a positive identity to so many young black children in this country at that time. And that was the first time, really, that I felt there was a positivity about being black. It was just like a song. There was just no arguing with it. Marcia makes an appearance in the film, and she talks about what that song meant to her. The West Indian community in Jamaica in the 60s and 70s got a lot of strength from the black power movement that was going on in America. And they they needed a voice. This community needed a voice. And through this reggae music, they were able to link themselves to the black struggle in America back to their island and then ground themselves in Britain as important to the culture, not just a, a sidebar immigrant culture. A couple other sonic cinema titles I'll mention. Echo in the Canyon brings musician Jacob Dylan from the Wallflowers to the festival. In the film, he's looking back on the folk rock tradition that came out of Laurel Canyon in the 1960s. He has terrific interviews, including one of the last with Tom Petty. The film also includes a concert of Jacob Dylan and other contemporary musicians like Cat Power, Nora Jones, and Beck performing some of this enduring music. The director is Andrew Slater. And one final film I'll mention, Teddy Pendergrass, If You Don't Know Me, looks at the singer who is poised to become the biggest R&B artist of all time until he was paralyzed in a car accident at age 31. Filmmaker Olivia Lichtenstein does a marvelous job with this rise and fall story and includes Pendergrass's emotional comeback performance at the Live Aid concert. You will be humming Teddy Pendergrass songs for a long time after watching this one.
Thanks to our four guests, DocNYC's Executive Director, Raphael Nehausen, Director of Programming, Basil Siokas, Programmer Ruth Samalo, and Associate Programmer Karen McMullen. And thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, Series Producer Sarah Modo, Sound Recordist Hannah Nordenswan, Sound Mixer Tom Micah, and Web Designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. The Doc NYC Festival happens on November 8th to 15th. For more information, go to docnyc.net. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Thank you.